The text chosen for this afternoon's sermon comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Now, before we read that passage together, let's first turn to the book of Acts, to chapter, Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, we find the story of Paul's first visit to the city of Philippi. And so this will provide us with a little bit of context into the Philippian church. Oftentimes, if we're getting to know a particular congregation, we might visit their church social page. Now, as far as I know, there's no church social page available for the church in Philippi, so we'll go one even better and see how our Lord, by His Spirit, describes that church in Acts chapter 16. We'll get to know these saints in chapter 16, verses 6 through 40. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. 
When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Thus far, our reading from Acts chapter 16. Let's now turn to our text from Philippians chapter 1. The text will be verses 3 to 6, but we will read verses 1 to 11 together now. Philippians 1, starting at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, Always, in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Thus far, our reading from God's holy word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever met someone who is always thankful, no matter what the circumstances, who has so much joy that it just overflows into praise? Sometimes these people are the ones who have experienced the most suffering and yet have unwavering joy in the midst of their troubles. While the Apostle Paul certainly meets such a description, he suffered much, but was marked by thanksgiving, joy, and confidence. When he wrote the letter to the Philippian church, he was imprisoned and in chains for the sake of the gospel. He may have written this letter while under house arrest in Rome, guarded by a Roman soldier at all times, awaiting a trial before Caesar, If his eyes had been fixed on those circumstances, he might have despaired. We certainly might have despaired. But despite these chains, he writes to the Philippian church with joy and thanksgiving. He says in verse 4, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Can you sense, are you tracking with his enthusiasm here? Every, always, every, all, superlatives abound. When Paul thinks of his dear brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi, he overflows with joy and thanksgiving. After all, they've been some of his most faithful supporters over the entire course of his ministry. This letter is actually written in part in response to some gifts that they had sent to him in Rome. So these saints give him reason for joy, and their support provides him with confidence in God's mighty work of salvation in them. Today, as we reflect on the work of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts and in the lives and hearts of the other members of the congregation here we can also share in Paul's thanksgiving, joy, and confidence. It is the same God at work in our hearts. And so the title, the theme for this afternoon's sermon is Overflowing Joy and Confidence. The sermon will be divided 
into to two parts. First, we'll spend some time considering how Paul's thanksgiving overflows into joy. And then second, we'll also see how Paul's thanksgiving for the Philippian saints overflows, brims over with confidence. So first, overflowing joy. Well, Paul knew the Philippian saints very well. As we read, he, he met them in Acts chapter 16. And it will be helpful for us to spend some time getting to know them as well. In Acts 16, we, we read about Paul's visit to this church. And after receiving a vision, Paul sets out from Troas and, and arrives at Philippi. In many other cities, if you've read the book of Acts many times, you might know that Paul's usual habit is to, when he's visiting a new city, go straight to their synagogue. But perhaps there was no synagogue in Philippi, or, or many Jews in the city at all, because Paul went to the riverside at this, on the Sabbath. And there he found some women gathered together, one of whom was Lydia, the first convert in Philippi, a dealer, a seller of purple cloth. Later, after Paul and Silas were, were beaten and thrown into prison, their jailer and his household also come to faith. Now, we don't meet any other Philippian believers by name in this chapter, but before, but before Paul and Silas leave, in verse 40, we read that they saw and encouraged the brethren. So clearly, there was already a gathering of believers in Philippi. And then as we start reading the letter, Paul's letter to the Philippian church, we find some more information. Paul addresses all the saints with the bishops and deacons, ordained office bearers. And then later in chapter 4 of this same letter, we hear of two women Euodia and Syntyche, who have some kind of disagreement. We also meet two men, Epaphroditus and Clements, and all of, of these people Paul counts as fellow workers in the gospel. So Paul is full of enthusiasm and joy about this particular group of saints. He thanks God for them as we saw as often as he prays for them, always making his prayer with joy. Now we should take special note of Paul's joy here because joy is a significant theme in the letter to the Philippian church. It's a word that actually shows up 16 times in the course of this letter. And as, re as we're reading through the scripture, we should also note that Philippians isn't the first time that we read of Paul, Joy, and Philippi all in one place. After all, we've, we've already read Acts chapter 16. In that chapter, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. But what do they do there? Do they wallow in self-pity? Certainly not. No, we read, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Their imprisonment, in other words, is marked by joy. When the Philippian jailer comes to faith that same night, we read that he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. 
the gospel has this effect for believers, for both new and long-time saints. Even if they find themselves in chains for the sake of the gospel, they know that they have been set free from chains to sin. While writing this letter, Paul once again finds himself imprisoned, but the joy remains. Joy is a constant. While that begs a question, where, where does this joy come from? Paul explains in verse 5, For or because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now the Greek word for, for fellowship used in our text is a very special word. It means something like close partnership between people, a, a relationship so close that someone shares and participates in the life of another. Perhaps we can compare Paul's close-knit fellowship with the Philippians to a group of sailors on the same ship at sea. They all row together at the same oars of faith. They share the same rations of grace and, and steer towards the same destination with hope. Later, Paul uses this same word, fellowship, to speak of fellowship with the Spirit and sharing in the sufferings of Christ. So he enjoys an extremely close bond with the Philippians, one that is rooted in the gospel and one that has continued from the first day until now. Well, what did that partnership look like? It was a spiritual reality that bore beautiful fruit. In chapter 4 of this letter, Paul writes, In the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared or entered into partnership with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Now this giving and receiving is the language of financial aid, financial support. Paul seems to suggest that by the end of Acts chapter 16, the Philippians provided him with financial help and then continued to do so over the course of his travels and his ministry. In fact, we, we know from the rest of the letter to the Philippian church that these saints had, had just sent him gifts in Rome through their brother Epaphroditus. And their generosity, it also extends well beyond the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 8, for example, Paul writes that the churches of Macedonia, which include Philippi, a city in this region, he writes that in abundance of joy, they had also given to the saints in Jerusalem. And so we, we know, we get this picture from Scripture that the Philippian believers were faithful supporters of Paul and his ministry efforts, but also all of the church. And they were faithful from the first day that Paul had visited them until now, the time that Paul writes this letter. But the Philippians were also partners in the gospel in another way. Like Paul... They were facing opposition and persecution. Paul doesn't give us many details in the letter, but he writes in verse 29 of chapter 1, 
that the Philippians also suffer for Christ's sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. The the same conflict, he says. This might mean that, that one or some of the Philippian believers had also been arrested. But in any case, we can be sure that the Philippians were living faithful lives. Paul writes a bit later that they shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So these saints, they were were brothers in arms with Paul. They participated in suffering for Christ on the home front in their, their own city. Their light, we could say, was not hidden under a bushel. No, they let it shine. So that this fellowship in the gospel, it brings Paul much joy. Why? It certainly doesn't come from his circumstances, which we've already seen, his house arrest and his chains in Rome. No. Paul harbors this joy deeply in his heart because he knows that this partnership is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knows Christ, his Lord. He belongs to him, and he knows that the Philippians do as well. Their close bond exists because they are joined together by the Spirit of Christ. Did you notice in our reading from chapter 1 this afternoon how many times that Paul refers specifically to Christ? From verses 1 to 11, we see that he Name drops the Lord Jesus Christ six times. Then again, in in chapter 4, he gives the Philippians this command. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So this joy is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul might be in chains, but he is no longer bound to sin or to his circumstances. Paul belongs body and soul to his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And because he belongs to Christ, Paul is is filled with joy when he knows that others are joined in Christ with him. He doesn't belong to Christ in isolation. No, he he is but one member amongst a body of Christ. That's the the source of his overflowing enthusiasm in our text. When he sees the fruit of the Philippians' faith, the fruit of righteousness that comes by Jesus Christ, he can do nothing but turn to God in thanksgiving. The faithfulness of his Philippian friends is the, the icing on the cake of Paul's joy. And brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul's joy is full of meaning. For us today, we also share rich fellowship in the gospel of Christ. We might compare Paul's partnership with the Philippians in some ways to the relationship between a church today and the missionaries that they send out. The church partners with their missionary by means of prayer and financial support, and at times the the missionary comes home for a sabbatical and reports back with joyful news from the mission field. What a blessing it is 
that our congregation here can experience such a report even this afternoon. So Paul's thanksgiving, it's a, a wonderful encouragement for us to joyfully continue in our own missionary partnerships. Not only with missionaries in faraway lands, but also with those who labor for Christ to spread the gospel in in our land. Our preachers, our local work of evangelism, any faithful efforts to, to share the gospel with those outside the household of faith. In the announcements for this afternoon's worship service, we saw a few opportunities that we have to to partner in ministry within our own community. But at the same time, as being partners in the gospel by supporting missionaries, we know that we are also partners in the gospel in other ways too. We know that being partners in the gospel on on the home front in our own city It may bring times of suffering for the sake of Christ. When we live lives marked by godliness or or share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the world will take notice. Our identity in Christ, we could say, is an open letter that declares to the world that we are not of the world, that we do not belong to them. And so as partners, we can expect the same opposition that Paul and the Philippians faced. Perhaps not to the same extent. We may not be thrown into prison, but we can expect opposition and and maybe even persecution. But at at the end of the day, because we belong to our Lord Jesus Christ, we can share fellowship in the gospel with joy, regardless of any circumstances that we find ourselves in. So let us delight to work alongside of one another. Consider the the work of God in the hearts of the members here, your brothers and sisters, the believers that you partner with in the gospel. The Lord has done amazing things in our midst. And consider also the timeline of our fellowship. God has, has gathered us together over a period of time. So in some ways, We've partnered in the gospel from the first day of joining this congregation until now. And so, like Paul, abound in thanksgiving prayer. As you go through the week, every time that you remember the saints, thank God for them. Pray for the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ here and do so while overflowing with joy. And that that leads us into our our second point. We'll also consider not only overflowing joy, but overflowing confidence. Now, we've seen that Paul finds joy in fellowship with the Philippian saints because he knows that this fellowship is fruit flowing from a pure source. So his joy, it's not a fleeting feeling. It's not rooted in a sense of human faithfulness, but in the faithfulness of God. In verse 6, he writes that he is confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
Paul can be sure, confident, certain, because any good works that the Philippians have done flow, flow from and are proof of God's good work in them. But we may ask, what exactly is this good work of God that Paul speaks of? Does Paul simply mean God's provision of financial support for his own ministry through the Philippian church? Well, this, this is part of the picture, but God's good work, it, it goes much deeper. Paul refers to the work of God in accomplishing salvation for them. God had began this good work by opening their hearts to the gospel. He has continued it in renewing them after the image of Christ. And one day, he will complete it when he brings them into glory. In chapter 2, Paul makes this same point even more strongly. He says there, It is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. Now, it's one thing to speak about these things in the abstract, but it's quite another when we can sink our, our eyes into a real example of where this has happened. And we find plenty of these examples in the pages of Scripture. So at this point, let's, let's turn back to Acts chapter 16, to the story of Paul's first visit to this Philippian church. And let's see and delight in God's sovereign fingerprints beautifully revealed. Now as Paul and his companions, we read, they, they stay in Troas, Paul receives a vision. A man of Macedonia, in verse 9, we read, stands and pleads with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul concludes rightly that God was calling him to, to preach the gospel there. This wasn't a, a whimsical sort of decision on, on Paul's part, but it shows that God opened a door for the Philippians to hear the gospel. Then we, we read on, and when Paul encounters some women praying at the riverside, we meet a woman named Lydia. She was a worshiper of God, but she had not yet heard of Jesus Christ. But when Paul spoke, we read that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So the Lord had, had brought the gospel to her through her, his servant Paul, and he opened her heart. He granted her eyes to see and ears to hear. Then we read on again and we find another example. When Paul and Silas are in prison, a great earthquake breaks their bonds and opens the prison doors. The jailer, he wakes up and thinks he's as good as dead. Surely, he assumes, the prisoners have all walked right through those open doors. But Paul Paul steps in and Paul shouts, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. So through his servant Paul, God intervenes in this jailer's life. Paul and Silas, they go on to preach the gospel to him, of course, and the jailer, by God's good grace, believes. 
It was certainly not the jailer who had begun this good work in himself. Far from it, we just saw that he was ready to kill himself. But God saved this jailer from certain death and gave him not only life in this world, but new life in Christ. The canons of Dort, the confession, one confession of the church describes the beautiful doctrine of conversion or regeneration in this way. To those whom he has chosen, God brings the gospel, enlightens them to understand it, opens their closed hearts, and brings their will to life. Once God begins this work, the believer's heart will certainly be opened, and he or she will believe, just like Lydia and our brother, the jailer. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, we read of God as a potter who works with his people as with clay. If we expand this illustration a little bit more, it may help us to understand grace in its fullness. Just as a potter might start a project to form a clay vessel, God begins his work in his children with a master plan, a grand design. The potter, he starts with a lump of clay and he begins to shape it according to that plan. The clay, remember, the clay certainly cannot shape itself. The jailer certainly could not save himself from death. But at this point, if they were hearing this illustration, the Philippians might have asked a question. Well, okay, so we know that God has begun a good work in us, but what is he doing now? What is the meaning of the suffering that we face? You know, Paul, that we experience suffering just like you. And the Philippians, the Philippians are not alone in asking that question, are they? Because our own circumstances and feelings may leave us with the very same question. Why am I suffering now? What could God possibly be doing in the midst of these circumstances? Well, Paul, he doesn't leave us there. No, he he has a beautiful response. He writes that God will complete his good work until the day of Jesus Christ. God's good work in his children is a process that involves a timeline, a beginning, a middle, and an end. God will bring his good work to completion when our Lord Jesus returns. We are certain of that. But in the meantime, his work is in progress. He shapes us by his Spirit to reflect our Lord Jesus. And he will continue to do so, you can be sure, until the day of Jesus Christ. The divine potter, he does not begin working with his clay and then leave that work unfinished. No, he is always at his workbench, molding his clay according to his timeline. Now, if, if you've worked with wet clay you might have noticed that sometimes your fingerprints leave their impression on the clay. 
as we reflect on our own lives, we do not always see how God is working. But in stages and over time, we can begin to see our potter's fingerprints. Paul sees such proof of God's grace at work in the Philippians, and we can be encouraged by the same evidence of God's good work in us. And then finally, Paul moves in our text from the present to the future. He confidently encourages the Philippians that God will complete his work in them until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks here of the end times, the the day when our Lord returns. And this theme, it, it surfaces throughout the letter. It's something that the Philippian church needs to hear in their time of suffering. And by his Spirit, the Lord also knows that we need to hear this same lesson in our own suffering and circumstances. Because it's a key that unlocks encouragement and confidence for the Philippians and for us. Because when our eyes look to the horizon of the day of Christ's return, our present circumstances begin to lose their distress. Not all at once, but our suffering does have a shelf life, an expiration date. It will end. But why? Why can Paul be so sure and confident of this? How can he look so confidently to the future? Well, it's because he is so confident in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished in the past. In chapter 2, you may know this passage very well, Paul writes a beautiful poem, a hymn about our Lord's work. In Christ's humiliation, he took the form of a servant. He was born as a man and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But on that cross, he declared that his work, what he had come to do on earth, was finished. Although he had lived in perfect righteousness, he had borne the wrath of God in our place paying the price for our sins, yours, mine. Yes, even even that sin hidden in the recesses of your heart, he came to save you from that. But Paul Paul then knows that the story, it doesn't, doesn't end there. After all, he himself had encountered the ascended, exalted Christ on the road to Damascus. He knew that the Father had highly exalted His Son and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. He knew that at the name of Jesus, every knee would one day bow, just as He Himself had fallen to the ground when the Lord appeared to Him on the road to Damascus. So as Paul looks back on the work and exaltation of Christ with joyful certainty, he also looks forward to the day of Christ's return with joyful expectation. On that day, Paul knows that God will complete his work of salvation in the Philippians and in all believers. 
Christ sits in glory at the Father's right hand. It's only a matter of time before all believers join him in that glory. On that day, when our Lord returns, the potter will remove his clay vessels from that kiln of suffering into their final state of glory. This will happen right on schedule in the potter's perfect timing. So brothers and sisters in Christ, as those in whom God has begun a good work, we can take such confidence and comfort from Paul's confidence. Like the Philippians, we can reflect on what God has done among us. Some of us might have conversion stories as incredible as the Philippian jailer. Some of us might have stories that have begun more softly, like the way the Lord opened the heart of Lydia. But all of our testimonies begin and will end with the same potter, the same God, with the same love for his people. Thanks be to God, we do not place our confidence in our own feelings or our own faithfulness. Your doubts may tell you that your sins have put you beyond the reach of God's love. Your tears may tempt you to accept that grief and pain is all there will ever be. Your circumstances may try to rob you of any joy or any confidence. Well, fellow pilgrims, let us turn our eyes upon the Lord Jesus. Fix your eyes firmly on what God promises us in his word and what he signs and seals to us in the sacraments. Our entire salvation rests in Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. So finding confidence with Paul in that finished work, let us look with longing to the day of Christ when all God's work in us shall be complete. We may feel the pains of being shaped by the potter right now, the pains of fellowship in the gospel of Christ, but we can be sure that this pain is but a moment on the timeline. It's a moment in a process that will one day be completed. So like Paul, let us look at our lives and the lives of the saints around us and thank God for his fingerprints visible in his clay. Let us not cease to pray for the saints, but pray with confidence that God will complete his good work in them until the day of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's now bow our hearts before the Lord Jesus in prayer. God of all grace, we praise you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the complete salvation you have won for us, for your sovereign fingerprints on display in our lives. We rejoice in your good work. You have sent to us your Son, brought to us your gospel, opened our hearts by your Spirit, brought us from death to life. We thank you for the church in which you have placed us, for the fellowship and the gospel that we share with each other here. 
We pray that you would bless our fellowship, that the work you do among us would provide rich encouragement as we walk the pilgrim road together. Help us to partner with one another in the gospel, being filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Let your gospel go out from us in word and deed that others may know the love of Christ and be gathered into your fold. Work in our hearts the same generosity that you have shown to us so that we may support those who labor as missionaries in foreign fields and at home. Grant us joy in Christ, a joy so deep and full that we delight to share it with one another and even overflow into our community. As weary pilgrims, we lift our eyes to the horizon and we long for the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you make that day come quickly? Soften our sorrows and grant to us endurance. You who have begun a good work in us, we pray that you would bring it to completion. In our suffering, renew us after the image of your Son until the day when we shall be like him and with him in glory. O love that will not let us go, we lift our weary souls to thee. Take our lives and let them be always, ever, only all for thee. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen, ascended, exalted Lord. Amen.